you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have keyboardist Matt Fink, member of the Revolution, to talk about his time making music with Prince and the new deluxe edition release of Sign of the Times. Hot thing, belly 21, hot thing, looking for big fun, hot thing, what's your fantasy? Do you want to play with me? Folks, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. Once again, we have our good friend John Hughes with us. John, how are you? I'm great, Richard. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. All is well in music land right now. John, why don't you just tell them about some of these new releases that just got posted to rhino.com. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, we were just talking before we uh, turned the mics on about how music is really a good thing in these times. I mean, people are just leaning back and, and rediscovering old favorites, and we've got plenty for you guys to rediscover. There's a new box set by Aretha Franklin just simply called Aretha. It's a career-spanning box set that covers almost 60 years of her career, four CDs. It's also available digitally, 81 tracks. 19 of those are previously unreleased alternate versions, demos, rarities, live performances. And if you want you know, a slimmer version of this, there's a 2LP version and a single CD version with highlights. And if you pre-order now, you'll have it in your mailbox right around that November 20th release date. I hear that there is the demo that got her signed to Atlantic on this. I'm excited to hear that. It's pretty cool. Super cool. And if you're more of a guitar lover, we got Eric Clapton's Crossroads Guitar Festival 2019. That is coming out the same day, November 20th. This collection has four hours of highlights recorded live last year at that charity musical festival that happens. It was founded by Eric Clapton himself. Tons of configurations on this one. Three CDs, six LPs, two DVDs, Two Blu-rays. You know, it's like a menu. Whatever you want to pick, pick one. Uh, There's 41 performances with people like, of course, Eric Clapton himself, Jeff Beck, Peter Frampton, Buddy Guy, Bonnie Raitt, Jimmy Vaughn, Marcus King, Gary Clark Jr., Los Lobos, Sheryl Crow, just so many. I, I can't even waste all the time. Just buy it. It's always great. And of course, you know, it's so cool that they actually film it. Always stellar performances. And the Jeff Beck, we all love Jeff Beck, right? At Rhino, mm-hmm. of course, because, you know, we've worked with him so much. But he again knocked it out of the park. An amazing performance. So I'm really he looking forward does. to seeing that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it always does. If you like what we did with Wilco's being there a few years ago, you're going to love the upcoming deluxe edition of Wilco's Summer Teeth. This is four CDs in this set with a remastered version of the original album, lots of unreleased studio recordings, an unreleased 1999 concert. It's on a limited edition 180-gram 5LP version that exclusively features an unmitigated disaster, which is their live performance at Tower Records from 1999. And this one comes out November 6th, so you don't have long to wait for this. And you can reserve your copy now. Where else? Rhino.com. That's right. But that 5LP version, which is really cool, and that's the only place to get that Tower Records performance, that is a limited edition. So that one's going to sell out. You want to grab that quick. Well, John, thanks very much. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time. All right. As stated at the top of this broadcast, we have as our guest on this episode, keyboardist Matt Fink, who played with Prince for 12 years, starting in 1978. Matt saw the rise of Prince's career from his signing with Warner Brothers to his ascension to stratospheric fame. Even after Prince disbanded the revolution with the release of Sign of the Times, Matt stayed on as the only member from the revolution to continue as part of the new power generation. We get into all of that, as well as talking about the recording of Sign of the Times and some of his favorite songs from the new deluxe edition release. Matt Fink, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. We're obviously here to talk about Sign of the Times, which you were involved in. Enthusiastically, at the time, was there. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you joined Prince way back, way before that in 78. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I joined in the fall of late fall of 1978 he graciously accepted me into his group at the time so how did you land that gig i fortunately knew and still know bobby rivkin bobby z the original drummer from prince and this was because we grew up in the same community and our parents knew each other and they used to do fundraising events for the mount sinai hospital of minneapolis together and that's how i got to know bobby as a young child, I was about six when I first met Bobby at his house. And wow. he already had his drum set set up in his house, playing in his two older brothers' band called the Jaguars. So long story short, fast forward through our years in school, high school, St. Louis Park schools together. He was two years ahead of me. so I, And we went to different, but the other two, there were like two junior highs. So I didn't see him through elementary or junior high other than going to his house a few times to, you know, with my parents. But when I was like 19, he brought me Prince's demo tape to listen to. And, you know, and we, we kind of stayed in touch, you know, before that. But And was he already playing with Prince at this point in time? Not officially. Not officially. He was like, he was like being Prince's first manager's assistant at that time. That was Owen Husney. And Bobby was playing drums in another band at that time. And helping Prince, you know, get around. Because Prince didn't have a car and... And they were just at the point where Prince was about to make that decision of what drummer he wanted. He hadn't been signed yet, but they were very confident that he would be signed. And Bobby brought me his demo tape that his older brother, David Rifkin, had produced here in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. 
so I, I heard this tape. I, I was playing in, in my cover band at the time, you know, here in Minneapolis. And he took me out during a break to his car to listen to the cassette. And I said, wow, this is a great band. Who the heck is this? Yeah. <laughs> and Bobby goes, it's not a band. It's one guy in the studio playing and singing and writing everything. I go, what? He goes, yeah. And he's your age. I go, he's, he's 19 years old. He goes, yeah, he's 19 years old. Bobby was 21 at the time. That's astounding. I, I said, I, I, who does that? Nobody. I only knew of one other or two other artists that played everything in the studio. I think it was Stevie Wonder and right. Todd Rundgren at that time. Yeah. And I, I just said, uh, and, and so young, you know, and I said, well, wow, uh, what are the plans for this? And he goes, well, I work with a team of people that are going to be taking him out to L.A. and New York and, you know, shopping the material to see if we can get him a record deal. And I go, wow, let me know what happens with this young man. Yeah. So I just kind of stayed in touch and said, look, you know, when he's ready to put together a touring band, let me know. I'd love to audition for the group. So I got my shot a little over a year later. He got his record deal, put the album out. I had the opportunity to try out for the group. And what was it like meeting him for the first time? It was kind of funny in a way because he had an interesting sense of humor and his way to break the ice was to ask me if I had learned a particular song on the first album, which was called The Song So Blue. And I had worked on the single, which was Soft and Wet, and a couple of the other up-tempo songs, which is what Bobby told me to do through through Prince, you know. Yeah. And and, and so when he said, did you learn So Blue? I said, uh, no, I, I didn't learn that one. You want me to play that? And he goes, nah, don't worry about it. There's no keyboards on it anyway. Ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> And he laughed, like like testing me to see if I knew the song or listened to the album enough to know that that didn't have keyboards on it, right? Right. We just jammed for you know a good hour before we even played anything. He the one thing he loved to do is to just riff off of people. So my first meeting was literally a jam session. That's cool though. That's a great way to figure out if you gel with somebody musically. And, no, I, I, I don't, I'm not criticizing. Yeah, no, really no, no, cool. I'm not either. Yeah, no, yeah. it's very cool. That worked, and then he kept me there, obviously, so uh, he wanted to do some more, so we, we ended up playing the other songs I learned, and then uh, about three weeks later, he made his decision to bring me on board. Wow, that's fantastic. Did he call you himself? Yeah. Uh, oh, boy, that's a good qu- No, <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I don't think he did. I think it. I think it was Bobby who called me. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes let sense. Let me know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I reported to rehearsal. The first rehearsal. Oh my gosh, that was something else. And that so, was who was in else. that band at the first rehearsal? Was there anybody else that became part of the revolution yet in the band besides you and Bobby? Um, no, because first of all, you had Des Dickerson, and you had on guitar, and mm-hmm. then you had Gail Chapman on the other keyboards. And Andre Anderson, who became Andre Simone, of course, and myself and Bobby. And, you know, Dez was right on the cusp of when it became the revolution. Like when the 1999 album cover says the revolution backwards on the little football of the dotted I on the Prince name. It says revolution, just the word revolution and it's backwards. So it's like he must have known he was going to call us the revolution, but I don't recall him saying Prince and the revolution on that tour. Yeah. That name didn't come in till the purple rain album. I don't think. What was that first tour like? 
it wasn't really a tour because it, what it ended up being was what's called a showcase gig to play for the Warner Brothers executives. So we literally rehearsed uh, November, December, a little bit of the early part of January. So n- not very long for a fledgling side group coming on with a guy like Prince. We weren't bad, but I wouldn't say we were ready for prime time either. We did the show. Where was the show? Where did you end up playing for the Warner Brothers execs? We played at this uh, little theater called the Capri Theater over in North Minneapolis, not far from where Prince grew up. We did two in a row on a weekend. The Warner Brothers people flew in, the president, you know, the head people, the head of A&R, all these people. They flew in to catch the band. First night, we had a technical glitch with Dez's guitar where his FM guitar transmitter malfunctioned and started picking up police radio in the area. (laughs) Oh, no. We had to stop the show in mid-sentence, and Prince was completely a deer caught in the headlights and didn't know what to say for about a minute or so, and it was dead silent while we were struggling with the technical aspects of what was happening. And finally, Prince said something, and then you know we got the show back on the road. Uh, and then at the end of it all, they, the Warner's guys said, you know, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Don't you know? It's, uh, we think it's time to start the second album. Let's get that going, and then keep rehearsing the band. You need more. You need to do more to get it tighter. You know. Yeah. So you know they didn't say, "Yeah, you're ready." We weren't ready, so we went back to the drawing board and kept working really hard. Early summer of '79, and we rehearsed, you know, for a few months, and then embarked upon a September showcase tour around the U.S. We were going to do showcase clubs again, another first tour of all time just going and doing these little clubs all over like like the bottom line in new york and uh we did the roxy on sunset in la you know places like that all around the the u.s yeah you know but i think we did about total of like 13 or 14 but we missed the last three because prince developed laryngitis and we couldn't we had to cancel and then they decided not to reschedule then not too long after that maybe a month our management managed to find us an opening warm-up slot for the Rick James tour, which was called the Fire It Up tour. Oh, man. What was that like? (laughs) Oh, man. That was a a rivalry made in heaven or hell, which however you want to put it. (laughs) Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. What were those two like together? Were they trying to outdo each other on stage or was there a camaraderie? What was the dynamic like? Rick tried to have some camaraderie but prince you know wasn't into it here you had rick james who was flagrantly smoking marijuana on stage during the show and having two people dressed in joint costumes (laughs) coming out on stage on either side of the stage with their heads smoking okay and i'm not exaggerating it was it was like spinal tap meets rick james right so so you had these guys come out and then the whole arena would literally light up with marijuana smoke. I'm not kidding. And then the police down south, I mean, we were playing what was called the Chitlin Circus back then, where where it was primarily uh, African-American audiences, funk crowd, and yeah. they would come out and fill an arena down in Birmingham, Alabama, and spill the place with marijuana smoke as soon as the song fired up with the two joints came out on stage. And you had Prince was completely anti-drug at the time. In fact, he even scolded you a little if you had a mixed drink in your hand after the show at a club or something. 
he really didn't appreciate you doing any substances, whether it was marijuana, cocaine, alcohol, you name it, Prince was dead set against that. And so you had Rick, who was smoking, actually smoking weed on stage, drinking Corvassier, and probably snorting coke backstage, and the police coming to the show knowing he's lighting up weed on stage, and they're saying, now nah, Rick, can't have you lighting up the marijuana on stage. We've been hearing about it from the other communities where you've been playing, and we're just warning you we're going to have to arrest you if you do that tonight. And I, I stood right there backstage while they said this to his face. The cops. It was uniformed police officers telling him, okay. I, I witnessed that actual conversation. And so what happened that night? He didn't listen. And did they arrest him? And they didn't arrest him either because they knew if they, tr- if they tried, there'd be a riot. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, Prince did the first album by himself. You come in, you're in the band now. It's time to do the second album. Yeah. How did he integrate the band into the recording of the second album? He didn't. So it was all Prince again for the second record. Absolutely. Yep. It was all him. At what point playing with Prince, did you start to record in the studio with him? The Dirty Mind album. That's when he took some music I had come up with during a jam session for the song Dirty Mind. And then uh, we tracked that together. And the song Head, I did the synthesizer solo on that song on that album. And that was it. That was the extent of my contribution to that record. Um, he did the majority of the, the rest of it. And I believe Lisa Coleman, who had just come on board when he was still tracking that record, participated on some vocal work. In fact, she did the lead part, female's kind of talky part on the song Head. Prince loosen up and start incorporating you guys on the recordings. What changed in order for him to bring you guys into that recording fold? He just started to realize, well, I've got these, you know, great players around me. I might as well start tapping into something here with them as well, which he did. That must have been, you know, just to get a different flavor. Because if, you know, if you're doing it all yourself all the time, it tends to maybe get too static. Um, and, and then as time progressed, you know, he collaborated with others more than others, you know, and it just depended on his whim and what he wanted to glean from whatever you had to offer. Yeah, probably what he heard for the track in his head, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. So we get to Sign of the Times, and this record really evolved from a few other records, didn't it, leading up to yeah. that? There were a couple yes. other things in production, uh, Dream Factory, Camille, and Crystal Ball. 
how was recording the music that was supposed to be the album Dream Factory different than other Prince albums? Was it was it really supposed to be more of a record by the Revolution? Again, here's one of those times in his musical history where he was tapping into Wendy and Lisa quite a bit. Both of their parents were part of the Wrecking Crew session players over there, and they grew up in the midst of all that. Wendy's father, just an amazing innovator of the bebop jazz piano format. Lisa's father, one of the greatest percussionists, you know, in the Wrecking Crew. That's something I've never heard before. That's fascinating. Their talent is just so amazing. And, and Prince was really tapping into them at that time. And I was there too, not as much as them. You know, I was kind of preoccupied. I was a newlywed that year in 86 when the Dream Factory was being worked on. I did a few sessions, I remember that. But Prince seemed to be giving me more space, you know, possibly because of that. And also his desire to um, be with Wendy and Lisa and tapping into what they had to offer. Because they, they had to offer quite a bit. But yeah, it's interesting. A lot of that unreleased material have Wendy and Lisa's stuff all over it. You know, and Eric Leeds, you know, Eric and Matt Bliston, those horn arrangements and things like that. And Prince was really busy at this time, too. And wouldn't he just kind of give Wendy and Lisa direction and let them record when he was not even there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. About yeah. the same time, too, Prince was building Paisley Park. A lot of people haven't been there, obviously. What was it like inside that building? It was the premier facility just about anywhere at that time. And it was here in the Minneapolis area, which is great, just, you know, 25 minutes west of downtown Minneapolis. What what more could you ask for? It was like a Hollywood soundstage in the middle of Minneapolis, you know, nowhere right. <laughs> in the middle of the country, you know. And it was a great opportunity for our neck of the woods to, and for Prince to put a little stamp on the music industry and entertain, just sorry, entertainment industry in general for movies and television, you know, and some movies started coming in and they were getting filmed there. I think grumpy old men was shot there. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Amongst other films, but, uh, Prince videos, Prince rehearsals, the Bee Gees were coming in to use the main studio big hit she drives me crazy by fine young cannibals was recorded there no kidding and produced yeah and produced by bobby's older brother david z so it really started to become a, a nice commercial viable venture on prince's part but then you know by about the mid-2000s he decided not to run it commercially after a while he, he kept it totally private and just started living there you know right actually son of the times is getting released and Prince decided he was going to split ways with the revolution, but he kept you on. What was that conversation like? Well, the conversation was, I've decided to let Bobby, Lisa, and Wendy go leave the group. Uh, Mark Brown had already quit at that time. He had planned to quit a year before he quit and Prince knew he was leaving, but he stayed on, you know, for a while more because he wanted a solo career. So he just said in one foul swoop, he was, you know, breaking up the group. And he said, I'm giving you the opportunity to stay if you want, but I would understand if you wanted to leave. And it was a tough one. That was a tough decision for me. I just did my best to dissuade him from breaking up the group. I mean, and I knew that there were issues earlier in the year. That's for other people to tell their story. But I just said, you know, things seem to have cleared up. I thought everything was, you know, patched up. And he said, that's not that. I, I just... I want to make a change and go a different way. 
And I said, okay. You know, he didn't want to listen to me saying, you know, please don't do that. Right. <laughs> Which is, I, sure. I said, don't do that. I think it's a mistake. That's like Bruce Springsteen breaking up the E Street Band for some reason, you know. Yeah, I can only you imagine know? at that point, you guys were such a finely tuned, well-oiled machine. Yeah, yeah. I was disappointed. Where am I going to go if I leave right now? I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't know. Then uh, Wendy and Lisa and Bobby, what are they going to do? Are they going to invite me to go with them, you know? Right. But they certainly didn't expect that. And they told me that. They said, look, we don't expect you to quit on our behalf. They said, if you did quit because of that, we would feel bad and we couldn't guarantee you an income. It was a tough one. Yeah. How much longer did you stay with Prince after that? Four more years. You know, end of 1990, I was with him. And I would have stayed under different circumstances. But at the time, something was happening with my life that I, I couldn't get away to do something he wanted me to do on really short notice after being on a couple months break from him. So it just didn't work out. And I said, well, can you just get a sub, get me a, get a sub for me for this one gig he was going to do. And then he just did what he did and hired another guy. Cause I, I couldn't show up. Yeah. And I, you know what? And, and in his mind, maybe it was ready for that change for me too, because oh, I've been here for 12 years. I need a different guy. I want to feel a different chemistry. You know, you never know what people are thinking at the time. Right. Hard to know. He, he never really talked to me about it. It was interesting. I had to go through his secretary, not him directly. He never, he never communicated it with me in a, in a way that was satisfactory anyway at the time to me. Yeah, right. It's tough. I mean, those things aren't easy to talk about anyway to begin with, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the Sign of the Times tour like? Was it something that you guys had really well rehearsed and it was the same every night? Or was he dynamic? Would he call things out on the spot? He used to at least give us some warning at soundcheck what he was doing. You know, any changes to a show that evening took place at soundcheck. And I literally recorded every sound check on my boombox <laughs> so I could have it in the dressing room before the show listening to remember what we just did for the show, to change any arrangement or song or whatever. Sometimes there could be up to three changes, at least, that were like, oh, what was that transition again? Yeah. So it was nice that he gave you a heads up during sound check instead of calling an audible in the middle of the show. Yeah, he usually didn't do those. He didn't like, He knew that it was too risky, you know, if we weren't ready. If there was anything, unless it was a song we knew really well, and then he could, and it didn't have to have any special arrangement or changes in between. But he didn't do that very often. It was usually pre-planned. Would yeah. he give you guys any signals on stage if he wanted to extend a jam or anything? Yeah, that stuff was kind of yeah second nature to everyone. And then he had certain cues for improving too, or a turnaround, or a riff, or something. You know, they were hand signals for that whether it was with the Revolution or the new version of the MPG after that. Now, at the uh, end of 87, you guys had wrapped the tour, and you did a New Year's Eve show at Paisley Park. And Miles Davis came and played with you. What was that like playing with Miles and seeing those two interact? That was quite a treat. It was like Frank Sinatra meets Michael Jackson or something like that. You know, It's like that sort of iconic meeting of the minds between two iconic souls we were all just in rapt attention as they say on stage just trying to make sure that whatever prince had up his sleeve wasn't gonna trip anybody up or make any mistakes and look kind of silly in front of miles davis we didn't want that no silliness yeah <laughs> right <laughs> you did you wanted to be on your a game 
I wanted to be on my A game in front of Miles. Yep. Yeah, no kidding. Did you get to hang <laughs> yeah. with him at all that night? Yeah, sure, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Actually, man, yeah. what's it like talking to Miles Davis? Well, yeah, man. You know, cat. You know, it's like, doctor. I thought you played pretty good tonight, man. I heard some tight riffs coming out of that fingers of yours, man. You know what I'm saying? That's how he talked, dude. That's got to be the coolest. Come on. Yeah, yeah. He was very soft spoken that way. Yeah, right. What other songs on Sign of the Times? If you look at that record and you look at the track listing, what songs stick out in your mind as the ones that were really special to you? This compilation is so huge, and there's songs on there, some of which I don't even remember, actually, or maybe never even heard before because those were done, some by him alone or with other members of the revolution without me. But I, I, I know that the song All My Dreams was one of my favorite songs from that album the album that didn't come out till now They all stand out to me because I think they're all gems in their own right. You know, right. That, that's the thing about about these songs is that there isn't anything that you're not entertained by or that you would necessarily would just go next. Do you recall any of the songs from this release when you played them live where Prince would really just kind of light up and be a little more effervescent on stage than others? I know he liked It's Going to Be a Beautiful Night because it's such a great, uplifting, fun dance tune. He liked that one a lot. about sign of the times is it had a lot of optimism in it while at the same time giving us some warnings about the future and then you know in the song sign of the times in itself could be almost applied to now it's it's still relevant because it's because of the song title in itself Well, before the pandemic hit, you were playing gigs with the Revolution. What are those shows like? They've been wonderful. I mean, wherever we play, it's been a great reception, and Prince fans are very happy that we're out being active again. Any plans to continue that after the pandemic lifts? We certainly hope so, yes. Yeah. yeah. Any parting thoughts about your time with Prince and Sign of the Times? Oh, it, it, you know, that time period was really interesting because, again, transitioning from the revolution to a whole new group of people was really interesting it was fun uh challenging but Mm -hmm. i felt we all got along quite well yeah and it was it was a very enjoyable experience i love being on the road with prince and presenting his 
music to the world. I mean, that's all I can say about it. I mean, what an opportunity to have come into your life to, to work with someone as prolific as him. That's all I can say about it. And so yeah. grateful to, to have been there to witness how great he was and what he contributed to our world. You know, it's all you can say about it. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you coming on the Rhino Podcast. Thank you. You got it. You got it. All right. Take care. There is so much great music on the new Sign of the Times Deluxe Edition, and one of those things Matt said really rang true with me. And in fact, he said there aren't any duds on this release, and each song takes you on an interesting journey. The sheer amount of material that Prince produced is just mind-boggling, and the Super Deluxe Edition includes over 60, 60 previously unreleased tracks and two complete live concerts from that era. Calling Prince prolific just doesn't seem to do it justice. I don't know of any other artist that really produced as much music. If you're a Prince fan, though, you really owe it to yourself to dive into this collection. And if you've never really studied Prince, but you've liked what you've heard, this is the collection that could very well make you fall in love with his brilliance. Be well, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.